Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, City Council spent many hours on Wednesday debating the prospect of a new Lime Ridge Arena. Is the discussion going off the rails? News came out yesterday that Andrew Shearer is actually a Canadian-American dual citizen. Also, the next debate for the leaders in the federal election is coming up Monday. What can we expect? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You may remember yesterday on the show, uh, Michael Landlar, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, joined us and talked to us about the uh, presentation that he made to uh, Hamilton City Councilors about his proposal to uh, build an arena up at Lime Ridge Mall uh, in partnership with Cadillac Fairview and in partnership with the city. And uh, this, uh, well, I'm not so su- going to suggest it was warmly received by council. They asked staff to go back and investigate this. But we'll get into some of the logistics and some of the wordsmithing that went on there. Uh, now we find out, uh, Andrew Dresser writes about this in the Hamilton Spectator today, that uh, council, I guess, uh, have lambasted city staff for even considering uh, a, a proposal that came out from Ernst & Young a little while ago, the uh, report, of course, suggesting that the city would probably have to put about $100 million into a, any kind of an arena project if they were going to attract any private sector investment. And, uh, well, maybe the whole thing is characterized by the comments of a couple of councillors who said not one damn cent of Hamilton taxpayer money is going into this project. And as I said in my commentary at eight eight ten this morning, if the city is not going to put one damn cent into it, one damn cent is probably what the private sector is going to put into it as well. So, I mean, have they basically put the kibosh on this whole proposal? John Best has been following this story, the uh, p- publisher, of course, of the uh, the Bay Observer. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, John, first of all, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us. My pleasure, Bill. <laughs> I, I know I know. every time I talk to a counselor about this and I say, this kind of reminds me of the stadium. Oh, no, it's different. It's different. The obfuscation and the twisting that goes on, any time these guys get anything like this in front of them, there's a consistency to it, and that's bothersome. No question. Uh, I, I watched the uh, the whole debate, and I think there might have been some anticipation around the council table that they'd they'd get Mr. Andelauer in here. It it looked like you know his original proposal was a three pager and uh, uh, lacked um, numbers and specificity, whereas the the Ernst and Young report, of course, uh, was filled with all kinds of projections and numbers. But something funny happened on the way to City Hall, I guess, because suddenly, um, I don't know whether it was kind of an oblique uh, uh, result, but suddenly people were scratching their heads and saying, where the hell did this Ernst & Young thing come from anyway? We were originally talking about divesting properties and getting out of the entertainment business, and all of a sudden we're looking at two dueling $100 million at least proposals, um, but I guess the difference is, if you if you look at uh, Mr. Andlauer's report, um, you know, he just did some numbers on the final page of his slide presentation, but it actually looks like there'd be pretty much uh, complete cost recovery on his project if uh, it, what it really boils down to is the city upfronting money, and then it, it's kind of repaid uh, partly out of now being able to tear down the arena downtown and 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 get it developed very quickly and he estimates the value of that at about 50 million and then of course there's the three million dollar a year subsidy or whatever that number is that we're paying to these uh, operators now he's saying that that will go away uh so you put it all together over say a 15 or 20 year period and it, it looks pretty much like a wash except that we have a new arena well there's a couple of things going on here uh, first of all 
Uh, that Ernst & Young report's been in their hands for the last couple of weeks, and the fact that they're now all of a sudden, this couple of days ago, they're starting to speak up, uh, indicates to me that some of the counselors probably actually read that report finally and, and, and were alarmed by some of this stuff. I, I don't know where they've been for the last 10 days, but now all of a sudden we've got this delayed reaction. That, that, that in itself is bothersome. The other thing seems to be the suggestion, and I know that there was a motion from, from Councillor Merle, it was, to say not to spend any taxpayer money, not one dime or cent or whatever the, the phrase was that he used on that. Uh, but the, the message, the consistent message from Michael Andlar's uh, proposal and from the Erston Young report, which is even a lot more opaque than, than the Andlar thing, both say if the city's not going to put any money into this, you're not going to attract private sector investment. Doesn't council get that message? Well, not not well. We'll see what they get. There's there are fifteen of them, and we've only heard from two or three, so it, it's hard to say. But I I think it's fair to say there is no scenario involving an arena of of this size or bigger uh, that does not involve taxpayer dollars. There there is simply no this notion that you know you can sell the air rights and somehow you can amortize a uh, hundred million dollar arena over a bunch of condos. It's just crazy because. Uh, first of all, you'd have to build something that's probably uh, 20 or 30 stories. And even then, why would a condo buyer uh, take on an extra, say, $25,000 for the privilege of living on top of an arena? Um, you know, there there has to be, there are, there's no successful, I don't care what kind of a sporting facility, um, entertainment facility, anywhere in North America, these things are typically... Maybe Las Vegas. There might be some. There might be an argument there, but you, you just don't get these kind of facilities built without taxpayer money because they are not intended and not able to produce uh, a profit that would cover off the cost of building them. The other aspect so of this, John, there's, a, there's a, I guess, a procedural thing here that I, I think we have to shine the light on. Uh, you've complained in the past, and I certainly have complained in the past, about how these guys, you know, kick stories down the road and, and they hire consultants to do reports, and then they get that report and they have to hire another consultant to uh, consult about that report, and on and on it goes. Uh, now they're ignoring all of these. I mean, we spent a lot of time and money on these consultant reports, and not just the Ernst & Young report, but we can go back to the reports that uh, Jasper Kajavsky uh, got put, put together by uh, this consortium group here in the city. The, and the, the message there was... Look, you can't put lipstick on a pig. You Yes, here's the cost of how much it would cost to fix up that arena, but it's not worth the money. And as Mr. Andlar said in his presentation, the money that you would have to pay to put First Ontario Centre just up to working standards is about the cost of an arena. So why not just build an arena? Well, exactly. And, and I think what happened here um, is that the public backlash uh, on on all of this was probably greater than anybody imagined it would be. I mean, if you looked at that meeting this week, uh, once uh, the presentation was over and counselors were asking their questions, most of them had these enormous preambles where they were essentially justifying what they had done in the past. So clearly they were feeling the sting of what I'm assuming is some kind of public, uh, you know, whether it's phone calls and uh, messages or whatever. There was something uh, that where, where they felt they really had to uh, sort of justify what they had done, and and what uh, what became very clear with uh, Mr. Andlauer's uh, presentation was that far from his uh, proposal being the last minute one that was sprung on people, it was it was very clear that he'd met with the mayor, he'd met with uh, city manager of the day, 
uh, met with senior staff and had been doing so for between two and three years. And, and so it wasn't his idea that was sprung on uh, the rest of us. It was the Ernst and Young thing, really. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that was quite embarrassing for, for certain members of council. Uh, so something happened here. I don't know what it is, but staff are being blamed. Uh, I don't think, uh, from my sense of it, uh, staff should be blamed. Uh, it seems to me that they, they were doing, I think, with staff. We don't want staff that are afraid to meet with anybody. Uh, that, that would be a terrible situation. We wouldn't have got the, uh, the maple leaf plant and some of that kind of stuff if, if there hadn't been the ability for staff to at least take a proposal a certain way down the road and then, and then, obviously, there has to be presentation to council and the public. But it's uh, it's just kind of a weird. I, I think it's indicative of the culture here in the city that uh, you know, don't embarrass me. Uh, you know, council uh, are it's so clear that their number one uh, issue is self preservation, and uh, they'll they'll throw anybody under the bus if if they find themselves embarrassed. Okay, I spent 10 years on council. I understand to a degree what's going on here. And every time there's a controversial issue and, and a, a, a capital project that's on the table, whether it's an arena, whether it's a stadium, whether it's an expressway, I mean, there's a long list. You're always, as a councilor, going to get calls and say, I don't want my taxpayer money spent on that. And, and that's fine. A lot of people in this city have that opinion. A lot of people on council seem to have that opinion. All they want to do is clear the snow and cut the grass and, and pick up the garbage, and then and we're going to have a fabulous city, which is a very naive approach to politics. But, I mean, I understand that some people hold those views. But if you got elected to try to move this city forward, you're going to have to make some tough decisions. And you're going to have to say, I understand that you don't like this idea, but it's in the best interest of the city both now and in the long term. And I don't hear too many elected officials that have the backbone to stand up and say something like that. They always seem to cower and say, geez, I got 10 phone calls that say it's a bad idea. I want those 10 people to put lawn signs up in the next election, so I'm going to support what they say. Well, yeah, uh, the city has not had a good track record when it comes to dealing with big issues. And, uh, I mean, this goes back, you know, as long as I can... I can remember it, it just seems to be very difficult for really any of them to kind of take a big picture view. Um, it all comes back to what kind of feedback they're getting from their ward constituents. I understand that. Uh, you know, if you, if you can't see yourself in any other role other than being a counselor, it must be a, a pretty miserable trap to be in where you have to, um, you know, be shifting around on issues all the time. But um, I think it's been an interesting week, Bill. I, I don't know where this goes. Uh, my initial thought was that what they were really trying to do was uh, listen to Mr. Andlauer, give him the uh, you know give him a bit of lip service, and then move on with uh, Plan A. Well, and that's it's now. This, I'm not so sure. This is the obfuscation. Well, staff is going to go back and study whether or not the, an idea of an arena up there is a good idea. Well, they've already. I think they. Pre, I don't even know what the answer is going to be. Uh, and they're going to come well, back and say thanks, but no thanks. This guy yelled at for approximately four hours. So, what kind of, you know, what kind of creative thinking? Uh, you know, they're they're probably moving into survival mode as well. So I'm not sure we're going to get a whole lot of creativity uh, unless everybody kind of settles down and allows, uh, uh, you know, a, a more rational discussion. And I don't think, frankly, yeah, I mean, nice to say we're not going to spend a damn cent, but. The reality is uh, the one alternative would then be that we have no arena at all uh, other than uh, 
the Andrew Chuck Arena, which, you know, would be good for minor sports, but uh, do we, uh, in a city of 500,000 people, uh, do we have no arena, um, no large indoor entertainment venue? Uh, th- that, that would really be the result of not spending one damn cent. A couple of things about this, too, and I, I, again, following the story that, uh, that Andrew wrote in the paper today, his column today, uh, he's also uh, suggesting and reporting here that uh, councillors did deal with the Ernst & Young report, and they uh, they voted to receive the report, not to approve the recommendations, but to receive, and there's a big difference between those two words. Uh, receive the report basically means it's on the record, but we don't plan to do anything about it. That's what receive means. And people well, need to understand uh, that. To be honest, Bill, I think that is the right decision. I mean, if they had, if they had gone ahead and said, "Let's implement that report," uh, that would have been absolute madness. Uh, there, there's not enough substance in that report. There's many uh, rosy projections, and uh, all of which need to be carefully analyzed. So, uh, I think receiving the report and paying their invoice is uh, probably the right. Uh, move at this but, point. But what's the message they're sending? And by the way, i got to tell you something else anecdotally, because uh, when I read this today, I, I, I was upset but not surprised, obviously, uh, by the way the council was handling this whole situation. Uh, and, and I know that they're intimating that, look at this consortium group that got together to write these reports, and, and we know those names. That's Leuna, that's the, the, the Carmen's group, and, and, and Fengate and a few others. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but I've talked to a couple of those people this week, and I just this and this was under the premise that they thought there was still going to be some some city money that was going to go into this. Both of them told me this was individually. They have no intention of getting involved in any arena proposal, none at all. They'd like to see something happen there. They'd like to see an arena, a better arena, but their contribution was for those reports. They are not going to get into the capital, and they both told me that individually, and that was on the premise that the city was going to contribute money. Now the message is the city doesn't want to put one damn cent into it, and as I said at the beginning of our conversation, that means they're not going to get one damn cent from the private sector. The same thing happened with the stadium. Oh, but they even put money into that from the, the future fund, and we still didn't get any other contributions from the private sector. No, and, and again, uh, to go back to my earlier comment, there simply is no scenario where, where the private sector can get return on investment by building a public arena. Um, and this idea that you can somehow, that the air rights can somehow be massaged in a way that, that you can add another $100 million to the cost of, a, say, a condo project and somehow spread that over the, the, the units uh, to get your money back, it's just not going to happen. And these people are uh, Fengate and, and those kind of people. These are pension. They're, they're administering pension funds. There are rules about uh, the kind of investments you can make. Uh, you can't just throw money around. Um, it, it's, you know, it can't happen. Uh, where the city can make a difference here uh, with, a, with a proposal like Ann Lowers is, is that they can borrow money cheaper than anybody can uh, to get the project going. But whether you went with the, let's say the Ernst and Young report was solid and, and, and you could go ahead and implement it, neither of the two proposals will, will, will start to pay off the investment in, until years down the road because you have to get the condos built uh, or whatever the commercial properties are that are going to support this thing. Um, and it's going to take time um, for, you know, tax increases, you know, part of that would be factored in as, as the return on investment. But all of that is probably 15, 20 years down the road. So you need upfront money uh, to make this happen. And that's 
that's where the city comes in. So what they should be looking at is which one will get our money back the quickest. And to be honest, right now, if you look at uh, Mr. Andlauer's thing, the, the one thing it allows them to do almost immediately is tear down the arena within two or three years and and the property alone is worth fifty million, so there's half of it. Yeah, right, right back there. in your pocket. Well, we're yeah. we're just about out of time, but I want to finish off with uh, one very strong message that uh, that Michael Andler gave us when we talked to him again yesterday. And I want to remind people of this. Okay, cut through some of the rhetoric that you've heard from some of the councillors on this. Michael is not saying build me an arena at Lime Ridge Mall or I'm leaving. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is do something and do it quickly, or I'm going to have to have make a business decision. With the way, the way councils handle both his proposal and then this thing from Ernst & Young, I, I get the feeling, John, we're back to square one. And that's not being that's, that's not speeding things up and trying to do something in, a, in, a, in a, a, a fashion that's going to accommodate that. I think we're all the way back now. We're going to start all over again with consultants and who's out there. And as uh, the mayor said, cast a wider net. This has got to be a very frustrating day for the, the Bulldogs, for Hamilton, the people that look out, see this, this council be progressive. It just seems to be it's one step forward and four steps back. And maybe maybe something's going to come of this. I don't know. But they've told us before that all oh, there are investors lined up. They, they want to invest here. They, they, they told us that with the stadium, too. I don't get, you know, fool me once, shame on you, you know. But anyway, we got a break. Uh, Stay in touch. Uh, we'll be reading about this in the Bay Observer as you do some uh, digging on this, as you always do, and I'm sure we'll talk about this down the road, John. Thanks. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get uh, another uh, perspective on this today because there's a lot of back and forth going on uh, during this campaign, and it's not about policy. It's about personality, and it's uh, as I think a lot of people are characterizing it now, gotcha politics. And uh, the latest volley, of course, is about Andrew Scheer. Uh, news came out yesterday in the Globe and Mail that Andrew Scheer actually has dual citizenship. He is a Canadian slash American. And, uh, well, the accusation, of course, is that he hid that from the media and from the public. Uh, he says, no big deal. I, nobody asked me, so I didn't say anything about it. But uh, is it going to be a factor? Does does it impact on, on people? And I want to ask Peter Grafe about this, who's also been covering elections for a long time in this country. Peter, of course, is a political science professor at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Peter, how are you doing today? Great, thanks. Uh, is, is, is this making a mountain out of a molehill, or is this something that, uh, that we should be concerned about? Uh, well, I mean, I guess it depends on uh, a national appetite for uh, this question. I mean, I, I, to my mind, it is kind of making a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, we've had party leaders in the past who have had dual citizenship, and so I think the way that the opposition parties are really spinning this is one around a question of credibility in in the sense that the Conservative Party in recent years, you know, criticized both uh, Stéphane Dion and Thomas Mulcair for holding dual citizenship. So how would they, you know, speak about it differently now? In some other countries, the question of citizenship is more uh, significant. So in Australia, for instance, if you aren't solely an Australian citizen, uh, you're not allowed to sit in Parliament. So... Uh, you know, different places have different uh, traditions in this regard. In Canada, though, we have probably you know upwards of uh, twenty or thirty MPs at the very least uh, in the in Parliament who hold du- dual citizenship, and it doesn't seem to bother Canadians unduly. Should he have uh, said something about this? Should he have proclaimed this when he became party leader, or or is it uh, is, is it the media's fault for not you know they dig up dirt on everybody else? They didn't seem to look at uh, at citizenship on on his applications. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess the main thing is, you know, should he have been uh, joining in and, for instance, criticizing Mikhail Jean, uh, you know, uh, 13 or 14 years ago when yeah. he was becoming uh, governor general on that? Uh, 
I mean, in many ways, if you belong to a party that's made an issue about this in the past, then, yeah, you would think that in the spirit of uh, of openness, one would admit, uh, you know, that that one had uh, dual citizenship. So, again, I think probably uh, for the, the opposition parties, uh, well, the sort of the non-conservative parties, you know, they'll really be playing this up as a question of, you know, is there a hidden agenda? Can we uh, expect if he can't even admit to these kinds of things, what is he not admitting to? In public, so I think it's more to create a sense of doubt around uh, Mr. Shear uh, than anything else. And uh, you know, it's been a difficult week for him in terms of it also coming out that he wasn't quite the insurance salesman that he said he was in terms of not even having the necessary uh, certifications to to do that. And so, you know, as these things build together, they probably do a bit to put questions in people's minds about him. And and that's I guess the, the 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 gist of this whole thing is is you know what else do we not know about him and once you start asking those questions that 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 seed of doubt uh, and of course his you know his 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 answer to the insurance thing was well yeah I I did apply for it and I qualified and I, I left before it hit and then we found out no there's five things you're supposed to do he did one of them and then left and and you know the fact that he left is inconsequential but he was touting himself as a, as a real estate agent somebody as a broker who was selling stuff and now this and. Uh, it, there's a cumulative effect, I guess, but it, it, for people that were leaning towards Andrew Shear in the first place, is this going to give them pause to say, well, I'm not so sure if I can trust this guy's integrity? Well, I mean, I think it probably plays in different ways. I mean, diehard conservatives are unlikely to change their views. Uh, uh, you know, the question you know, is more for people who might be saying, I mean, particularly as uh, Mr. Shear has, has framed this election in some ways around leadership, and, you know, can we be proud of uh, Justin Trudeau, look at his trip to India and so forth. It's been an important uh, chord in his, in, his, uh, in his election campaign. Uh, and so the, the danger for him is the light gets turned back to him, and you have someone who didn't really do much between graduating from university and becoming an MP, and, you know, even that not much, he seems to have exaggerated or, in fact, uh, lied about in terms of uh, the nature of his work. And so it becomes, uh, in some ways, the, the theme turns against you if suddenly people say, OK, maybe Trudeau isn't great on the world stage, but at least we know what he is. But Andrew Scheer, it's, it's really not clear what's there. So I think for the opposition parties, uh, uh, that's really what they will be pushing on. I, I think you raised, a, a, I think, a very germane point, though, and, and it's the hypocrisy about this. Because uh, obviously, Sheer himself and his his team and and a number of conservative pundits uh, right across the country over the last uh, fifteen twenty four hours actually, you know, are saying this is no big deal. But they did make it a big deal, as you said, uh, when it was Tom Mulcair, uh, and they did make it a big deal when it was Stefan Dion and and Sheer and Stephen Harper made it a big deal about Mikhail Jean when she became Governor General, always with the uh, the the insinuation that, well, if you held dual citizenship, can you really be loyal to Canada, or are you going to be loyal to that other country? And I'm not so sure how strong that argument is, but, I mean, if it, if it was good enough for, for them to criticize those people, why is it no big deal for Sheer? Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, precisely how it's going to be framed. Uh, and, I mean, I guess, you know, again, how, what, how does this play? I suspect this plays most uh, devastatingly uh, to people who believe that our politicians need to be very patriotic, and that if one was to have uh, dual citizenship, one actually is doing something that's wrong, that one can only have one nationality, and that has to be the core of what's moving them. That sort of uh, electorate, I think, in recent elections has been quite close to the Conservative Party. So, uh, you know, the question is, will that move those voters to say, well, wait a second, we have doubts about Andrew Scheer, or are they already, 
in a sense, strongly enough mobilized by the Conservatives that, uh, you know, despite their unhappiness with this revelation, it won't really change their decision about how they want to vote. I mean, I don't know how they're going to strategize this. I mean, I'm talking about the opposition parties here. Uh, You know, are they going to be the insinuation that, look, at any time we have Canada-U.S. trade talks, uh, that, that, you know, he may be sympathetic to the the, the American point of view as opposed to simply sticking up for Canada? That there's, There's a number of different ways we can go here. And I guess the question, as you've raised, Peter, is that going to resonate with voters? Yeah, I suspect not that much. I mean, uh, we're in a country where you have, uh, you know, over a million Canadians who have uh, dual citizenship. Uh, I think I think there is a sense that we expect people have come from all around the world to, to be part of what Canada is, and we see that as a strength. And so I'm not sure, you know, if it will resonate that much. Uh, I think for the Liberals, they will do two things with it. On the one hand, it enabled them to turn the page on uh, the hypocrisy narrative that the conser- uh, conservatives were spinning about the two jets and so on mm-hmm. right so it was a way for them to kill that uh, on on a very on that very day and, and push it back but the other I think is uh, this attempt to say if this is a, an election about leadership if Andrew Shear wants to say it's an election about leadership well let's turn the mirror back on him and this helps him build up the case that maybe there's something that's being hidden there or that it's someone who, uh, you know, may have achieved great things in life, but maybe hasn't shown that he's sufficiently impressive to take on the role of being, uh, you know, the face of Canada in the world. Well, he's already done the national interview with uh, Rosie Barton on, on CBC the other day, so it's, it's a little, you can't backtrack on that. But, uh, I mean, an embarrassing question, and I, I doubt very much it's going to come up in the debate on Monday night, but, I mean, you know, is, Mr. Shear, is there anything else about you that you haven't told us that we should know? Uh, and and that makes you, as, as it did with, with Justin Trudeau to do with the blackface situation, you know, what else don't we know about you? And and you can really throw that question at Sheer right now. It may not be of the same magnitude. It isn't of the same magnitude as the blackface situation, but it comes down to, okay, how transparent are you being with us? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess part of the question will be how Mr. Sheer manages to, uh, you know, and again, this is something that will last maybe two days on the campaign trail, but is he able to to return to the the narrative of leadership that's been important for him, or in some ways has he burned that bridge and he'll have to go somewhere else? I mean, it's been a hard week for him as well in the sense that I don't think he performed particularly well in the debate on TVA. Um, And so, you know, the hope of a conservative majority passing through Quebec, I think, gets less and less uh, credible. And so, yeah, he has to find a way of, of establishing his credibility in the rest of the country. Well, and we've seen that, I guess, you know, for those who follow polls, and I, I'm not a big fan of them, but at election time, I think they're, they're a snapshot. And, and the, the Nanos poll, which is coming out on a daily basis, uh, to your point, at the beginning of the week, I think the, uh, the Conservatives had about a three-point lead, uh, which is still within the margin of error, but now it's a two-point lead for, for the Liberals. So that's, that's a bit of a swing in five days. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it's within the, the sort of the, the, the margin of error of those polls. Yeah, but. they're still essentially tied, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, the question is, how does that break down in different parts of the country? And, and we have to see. But I guess the other part is to think about an election not just as a set of snapshots, but as a creation of narratives that may move voters in the final 10 days or so in a campaign. And uh, in a way, I think these revelations create a certain weakness uh, on the part of the conservative campaign as they're, as they'll really try to, for instance, pivot in those last days and make this about leadership and what leader you want. Well, I think suddenly they're going to have a harder time uh, making that kind of claim. I mean, I think similarly the Trudeau campaign uh, with the, the question about brown face and black face, uh, I think also made it harder for them to reach some ca- some voters who they are pretty sure they could convert away from the NDP, for instance, in the last days of the campaign. So, you, you know, these things, uh, you know, matter in the short term, but they also 
have an impact on how credible their narratives are when they're really trying to move voters in the last uh, the last days of the campaign. I mean, we don't know how, what's going to happen October 21st. We don't know who's going to form the next government. It is still a tight race. But uh, as, as we dissect uh, the, this thing in, in the months after October 21st, Peter, that that's one of the stories that I, I think we're going to have to look into a little bit deeper. Is that Trudeau's almost like the Lazarus candidate here. I mean, more than a couple of times he's been down and out, and then conservatives figure, okay, that's it. You know, we've, we've got this. And he comes right back up and they're tied again with only a couple of weeks to go. Well, I think in a situation where unemployment rates are relatively low, uh, you know, the economy's not wonderful, but it's still growing and in a positive direction. It's hard to lose when you're a prime minister. And in some ways, I think Trudeau's campaign has been uh, really one of trying to lay low and to minimize the differences with the other parties. And so, uh, you know, in his promise of a tax cut, uh, you know, which will cost about $6 billion a year, he's he's made himself really close to the Conservatives on taxation and the, the Conservative offer there. And, uh, and a number of social policy issues, you know, he's... Uh, Maybe a bit further from the NDP, but has put things in the in the window in the same places where the NDP has. And so, I think you know Trudeau may be the Lazarus candidate, but he's maybe one who realizes that things are going well, and so you limit the distance you have between with the other parties and, and hope that people are just happy with the economy and reelect you. I mentioned uh, just before you joined us, we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming debate on Monday uh, in just a few minutes here with Tim Harper. Uh, from the Toronto Star, but I want to get your read on it now that I've got you here. I mean, you've been studying these for the longest time. They are still tied. It's It's been neck and neck, as you say, still within the margins of error on this. Is is there an inclination, since it's really a two-person, a two-team race here for, for first place, for one of them to, to, to have a big uh, uh, debate, in, uh, like a, a kill shot here that just knocks them down, like Mulroney did to John Turner, or, or Jack Layton did, of course, uh, in his de- debate in 2011? Or do you just steady as she goes? What, what, what would the strategy be for the, the two leaders here? Uh, I suspect it's steady as she goes. I mean, there'll be six people on stage, so we know already that it's not going to be much of a debate because there'll just be too many people. Yeah. Uh, and I suspect they'll mostly be reading talking points, and they'll have their you know set defenses to uh, predictable attacks. So, I, yeah, I don't think it will it will have a huge impact in that way. It maybe is a bigger uh, moment for. Uh, the parties that aren't in the lead, and particularly Elizabeth May, who I think has been slipping and kind of fallen out of the the media story in the past uh, 10 days or so. And similarly for Jagmeet Singh, who uh, needs to make the case that while things may be tied nationally, uh, you know, there may be a space for the NDP in a number of regional races and to to be able to to maybe make people look beyond that. But, uh, you know, again, I think uh, I wouldn't expect huge changes coming from the debate in terms of how they perform against each other, but I suspect Canadians will be looking uh, at Mr. Scheer and Mr. Trudeau, given that uh, leadership has been defined as an issue, and uh, maybe their weaknesses that have been revealed in the past two weeks will have some impact in terms of switching between those two parties or, or looking further down the list. That's that's a story that's not getting a whole lot of attention, but it, it, it <clears throat> in fact, it does work out that we end up with a minority government. And I mean, if you know that old quote, or, you know, if the election were held today, that's probably what we'd end up with. Uh, the NDP and the Green could play a major role in that, and and so you know that's that's a race we have to look at too, as to how they're going to go in the last two and a half weeks or so. Yeah, I mean, certainly, and uh, we'll see whether they manage to find a way of crafting that as a message to say we're you know we may well be in a minority. Uh, do you want do you want us to be holding the balance of power, uh, or do they craft it in a nationalist way and saying, do you want the Bloc Québécois holding the national the balance of power? If not, maybe you should be uh, supporting us. 
So those are different. Those are difficult messages, I think, to pass. They're, they're a bit complex for the average voter. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if if we continue to see these polls. If on the one hand we see some parties making that case, and then presumably Mr. Trudeau saying, "Well, you don't want the bother of a minority government. Uh, reelect me with a majority, and uh, you won't have to to deal with uh, the chicanery and so forth." So that's, that's a, by the way not an outlandish idea. Because the Bloc were the official opposition just a few elections ago, weren't they? Yeah, and they look, uh, you know, they look to uh, likely to potentially be the third largest uh, party if uh, if the polls hold up where they are now. Um, again, that the NDP doesn't have to go up too much to to, to pass them, but uh, yeah, it wouldn't be impossible to see them uh, being the third largest party in Parliament. Peter, always uh, insightful to get your input into this. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome, Peter Grave uh, from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Monday, the uh, leaders' debate, the English language leaders' debate, and uh, you can hear it right here on CHML beginning at 7 o'clock. Um, and uh, we'll have a bit of a pregame show, I'm sure, before that, and uh, then you can hear the leaders. Uh, and, and Well, is it going to be decisive? Is it going to be something that's going to be a factor in how you make your decision? There is a great piece in the uh, Toronto Star today from our good friend Tim Harper. Are challengers up for the debate? And uh, Tim Harper joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Tim, welcome back to the program. It's been too long. It has been a while, Bill. How are you? Great, thanks. Uh, great to have you back in here. Great to have your piece here in the Star today. Uh, you've been covering these things for the longest time. I don't know how many years you've been on the beat here covering these. Uh, let me ask you, I guess, a more general question, Tim, because you, you gave some great examples in the piece today in the Star. Uh, do these things make a difference, or, and, and do we as a public, the, the, the debates that is, do we go in there with too high an expectation that we're going to see some of these mo- dramatic moments that just that's going to turn a campaign around? Yeah, I think we do, because more often than not, um, they don't really move the dial. Uh, there, you know, that old cliche about the knockout punch, you know, there have been moments, but uh, I think we should retire that cliche, because if you wait for it, you're going to be sorely disappointed uh, more often than not. Um, but, um, you know, looking ahead to Monday, this is a strange campaign in so many ways, as I, I, I'm sure you know, that there doesn't seem to be any movement in the national polls, which means perhaps the voters are still parking their intentions or they haven't really tuned in. And Monday might be the entree into the campaign for millions of Canadians who really haven't been paying that much attention. So I think there is a lot of potential uh, for the dial to be substantially moved after uh, after Monday night. I'll get back to that in a second. I want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff you put in the piece here. And you talked about some of the more poignant moments, uh, including, of course, Jack Layton's uh, uh, evisceration of uh, of Michael Ignatieff. Uh, you know, if if you don't show up for jobs, you don't get the uh, you know you don't get the other job. Uh, which, but and and then of course there's the the, the Brian Mulroney John Turner thing, two of the more famous ones uh, that we've seen in past debates. But is there an argument to be made, Tim, that instead of because I think historically we look back and say, boy, that really swung the election. Did it really? I mean, Mulroney was going to win that election anyway, wasn't he? And if, and there, I don't um, think Natchev had much of a chance at all in that election. No, but the thing with the Natchev intervention uh, from Leighton is that it propelled Leighton right into. Um, uh, in, in it made Leighton uh, all of a sudden suddenly relevant. It appeared, it, but it wasn't it wasn't immediately apparent to those like me who got paid to analyze those things because um, I'm, I'm not talking about everybody, but I think uh, most of the uh, parliamentary press gallery was fixated on Ignatius versus Harper. Yeah, and I remember being told by a friend of mine who was not covering politics after the debate, "Boy, Leighton had a really good night." And I thought, "Yeah, well, maybe he did." But this is between Ignatieff and Harper, and and that actually uh, catapulted uh, Jack Layton into the race. And um, 
it was the first step towards the NDP having a historically good um, showing and, and become forming the official opposition. Now, you're right about the Mulroney um, put down of Turner in 84. Mulroney was going to win that uh, anyways, but that that put the capper on it. Four years later, um, Turner, um, I, I believe, um, salted away a, a lot of his own legacy in that free trade uh, debate, and he won the debate in 88 against Mulroney. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't enough to swing the election, uh, of course, but... He may have uh, saved his own legacy, and he, and he may have saved a lot of the party's uh, furniture of that night because that was a campaign where, you know, there were, there were actual moves during the campaign to replace him as leader. And he performed well. He was, you know, ultimately, I guess we were all wrong on the fears about free trade because everybody backs it now. But you think back to 1988, uh, Turner turned that into a referendum on free trade with that um, claim that Mulroney was going to sell out the country with one uh, signature of a pen. So... That was a, that was a riveting debate. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're, we should, should be expecting something like that on Monday. Is that what's missing in this campaign? I mean, you're right because we seem to be going along here at glacial speed. Nobody seems to really want to gravitate to to, to grab our attention. Uh, but you mentioned about you know that was going to be a referendum. That's what they made. It's going to be all about free trade. Uh, Jean Chrétien on his return uh, said it was all about the GST at that particular time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and we've had. Those you know those election issues where that that's what's going to determine the election. Your your views on that? I don't know that we have one of those this time. No, I thought that uh, actually this would be a climate change um, uh, election, and it may yet uh, turn out to be that way. But there's there's been a lot of sniping about um, really trivial matters, uh, character matters. I, I I don't mean to I shouldn't have used the word trivial, but they're not going to. I don't think that. Um, we, we've touched on anything that's really going to swing the electorate one way or the other. It's been a it's been a very strange campaign that way, and that everybody's promising everything, and then then all of a sudden we take detours and get bogged down on how many planes the Liberals have, or whether Andrew Shear was an insurance uh, broker, and um, you know that kind of uh, trash talking back and forth might be uh, quite engrossing and amusing for the likes of uh, political junkies like me, but I don't think Canadians are are paying that much attention to it. So. It's it's really this is like Jello on a wall. Uh, this campaign, I can't really put my finger on what it's all about. No, I mean when these things come up, I like all they do is providing material for this hour has twenty two minutes. Uh, you know <laughs> those guys, those guys are going to gravitate to that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah this is a good campaign for them, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but the element, I think I think your point's well taken. Uh, you know the, the 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 dual citizenship, or you know, and, and the number of if you don't like Andrew Shear, if you're kind of skeptical about him, you're going to be even more skeptical about him. But I don't know if you are a, a died in the wool Andrew Shear fan, I don't think this is going to turn anybody off. Uh, no, and I think, you know, you hit on something there. I think a lot of uh, support, uh, pro and con, uh, pro-Trudeau, anti-Trudeau, or, or pro-Sheer, uh, was pretty well baked in before any uh, writ was issued. So, yeah. you know, and it's hard to get um, it's hard to get worked up about who might come in third place, except, um, you know, uh, looking ahead to October 21st, uh, minority or majority is, is a huge question, as is who would be holding the balance of power. Uh, so... Um, you know, I remind you that in 2015, the numbers didn't really move. Uh, it was a much longer campaign, but the numbers didn't really move for the longest time. And then, boom, the, the, the dam broke after Thanksgiving. So, you know, I think, I think Monday will be, uh, will be crucial. It'll certainly be well watched. And there's always the potential that uh, a challenger's um, 
going to find a moment that changes things. Well, and you point that out in the article today, Tim. And in that campaign, uh, as you say, we were just kind of going along, going along, and Justin Trudeau actually, I think, outperformed what a lot of people thought in that first debate. Remember, the assertion by the Conservatives was, well, you know, if he just shows up with his pants on, that'll be a good night for him. Uh, he did a lot better yeah, than I mean, that in that first debate, and I think he caught people's attention. He did, and and the uh, <clears throat> the uh, Harper campaign that was Corey tonight, strangely um, talking. You know, there are already low expectations for. Uh, it was a low bar for Justin Trudeau in 2015. The expectations were low, and, and the conservative strategists came out and lowered them even even more. Um, so that first debate, <clears throat> excuse me, that Trudeau appeared at, uh, he was solid. He didn't turn the uh, he didn't set the campaign afire, but he did establish himself as a serious candidate who could hold his own on that stage. Uh, and he was afforded a number of opportunities by the conservatives who wanted. To basically debate him out of the um, out of the race, and the opposite happened. He got stronger in the debates as he went along. Uh, of course, fast forward to 2019, he's the uh, he's the uh, the leader. He's got the record to defend, so he's uh, not quite the enthusiastic debater that he was in 2015. Because it's never fun to debate as the um, as the incumbent defending a record because you you are the target. And Monday night, there's going to be five uh, people uh, targeting. Uh, um, Justin Trudeau from a very crowded stage. I mean, that's that's really the the, the way these things roll out, isn't it? Um, whoever is the you know the, the top dog is is going to be the target of just about everybody. But it, it, yep. with such a big field, though, Tim, do the other people do that at their own peril? You've only got so much time and so many questions to be answered, and if you're going to spend you know forty five of your sixty seconds taking a shot at, at the sitting government, well, they're not sitting anymore, but at the past government, uh, instead of getting your point across, are you really winning anybody over? Yeah, it's going to be a, a bad, a tough dynamic for any of the challengers on Monday because that stage is so crowded. Um, you know, if you're uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh trying to get your message out, you're you're sharing uh, time with the the Bloc Québécois and Maxime Bernier, and uh, your time is just uh, diluted. And you know that is going to be a problem. I think that I think that stage is is uh, way overcrowded. Um, but to your point about everybody um, firing off at the um, uh, at the incumbent or or the the representative of the governing party, you know the funny thing about the debate in French this week is that um, Andrew Scheer became the uh, the punching bag yeah. uh, of everyone. He had a he had a demonstrably bad night, and he, that allowed Trudeau to easily hold his own. And that's all. I've, it's tough. I shouldn't say that's all, but that's what Trudeau's got to do on Monday in English: is hold his own, not stumble. Uh, and, and and not go down any dark alleys, but uh, hold his own uh, and defend himself because it's it's virtually impossible for the um, the, the governing the the incumbent um, to score points because you, you've just got to fend off uh, too many slings and arrows coming your way. Yeah, you're you're playing defense through the whole thing. But I'm, I'm wondering yeah, about the yeah. I'm wondering about the strategy here, though, Tim. Uh, for instance, uh, yeah, it's the, the the easy uh, strategy here is okay. Let's all take a shot at the, at, at Trudeau because he was the prime minister and it's his record. But if you're Maxime Bernier and and you're trying to win support over, uh, you can tear down Trudeau if you want. But there's nobody who is leaning liberal that's going to vote for the the People's Party. But there are, there are some conservatives that may go that way, and I already did. I mean, that's where Bernier came from. So does he look at Sheer and say maybe that's the guy I need to go after to try to get some votes? And likewise, Singh and, and in May. Are, are neck and neck right now? Do they, you know, that that could be the balance of power. 
It, it, the easy That's shot right. is to go after the big guy here, but you know there there are fights within that fight too. Well, uh, first off, on, on Shear, Shear has got to try to tear down Max Bernier uh, very early in the evening and then leave him alone. And I think all the other parties will, will just essentially try to ignore him as best they can. There's there's, there's no percentage, there's no points in, in taking on Maxime Bernier, uh, uh, but he does represent a, a threat to Andrew Shear, as you know. <clears throat> this is not good news for Shear that he's on the stage, but... You know, if I'm Elizabeth May or uh, Jagmeet Singh, I, I I take one withering shot at Bernier and then and then pretend he's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm also if I'm the NDP, it's easier said than done. But um, you don't want to spend a lot of time uh, sparring with Elizabeth May because you want to let voters know and your supporters know that you are still focused on um, on the two. Uh, uh, leaders of the conservatives and the liberals um you you want to give the impression that um, you are the third federal party not elizabeth may and her greens and you don't want to start debating elizabeth may so you know it's tough because you want to shake her um she's certainly running even in many polls with the ndp but the ndp doesn't want to give her too much credit by engaging with her so um you know, and the same goes for uh, the Greens. Although the Greens, I think, would probably still go at the NDP because there's more growth potential for the Greens. So um, I, everybody's got a different strategy. But uh, ultimately, you know, Andrew Shears, I think, got up his game. I don't think he's had a very uh, strong campaign. He seems guarded. Um, you know, I, I think if I was advising him or one of his handlers, I'd say, uh, you know, let it loose. Loosen up a bit. Uh, he looks a little he, too buttoned down, uh, and I think that's that's hurting him in this campaign. With that in mind, uh, not everybody's going to watch the debate Monday night or listen to it here on CHML, but they will hear the newscasts in the subsequent days after that. And, and as we know, mm-hmm. those sound bites can can make or break a campaign. In other words, I didn't see the whole two hour debate, but I heard this clip that they kept running over and over of candidate whatever, and boy, they they sound like they know what they're doing. Uh, so is is uh, with that in mind, uh, you mentioned earlier about you know the knockout punch. Maybe not a knockout punch, but that line that's going to survive after the debate. I mean, I, I'm sure they've got writers back someplace in the back of the bus as they're campaigning today, saying you got to come up with that zinger. Yeah, historically, um, it takes it seems to take a couple of days for um, a consensus, if there is a consensus, to to uh, come together. Um, it it rarely happens that night or even the next morning. And I think you're right. I think it's the um, accumulation of um, clips on TV or the, uh, uh, the Internet or, you know, uh, a couple of days of, of calling the same boy didn't he or she have a bad night. Or, or you know, somehow, sometimes images just stick. I mean, body language is important, too. I mean, if you, you, know, if you look like you're, you've been caught in the headlights, uh, you know, that 2011 intervention by Leighton against Ignatiev was good, but the the bonus there was Ignatiev uh, had no response. He looked he looked completely bamboozled, which was strange for all of us because you know the the, the news about his attendance record in the House of Commons had been on the front page of newspapers like two weeks earlier. You would have thought yeah. he he yeah. would have been ready for that. So you know it's it's a question of uh, being prepared and uh, knowing your file, and it can only it can take one bad fumble. Um, and, and that builds uh, over the days. You know, it's it, 
it, it's a strange phenomenon, but there's, there's kind of like a group think um, um, takes hold, and all of a sudden, 48 hours later, it's yeah, boy, uh, he sure won that debate, even though it might not have been that apparent to anybody watching it in real time. It, well, they're they're tied essentially at the top right now. So, do uh, you see a swing here? You mentioned about that English language debate four years ago, where where Trudeau did pretty well. Uh, got a couple of good shots in at Mulcair. Mulcair started to go down in the polls. Trudeau went back up, and that seemed to be the beginning of that ascent. Is is it too late in the game to see that sort of a, a, a massive change right now? Or are we going to stay neck and neck right through until the twenty first? Uh, I I think there'll be a uh, I think things will start to move um, <clears throat> next week, and I think things will continue to move after Thanksgiving. Um, I, I've I've never covered a campaign in my life, Bill, where the numbers just haven't changed. There will be a break. Um, I'm not going to predict which way it's going to go, but uh, somebody is going to take control of this uh, of this election, and I think we're probably going to see it start next week. There's two debates next week. There's that traditional Thanksgiving thing where uh, everybody has another extra glass of wine and argues about politics over the uh, the dinner table during a campaign, <laughs> um, and people are going to just start to think strategically. Um, and I think you're going to say, I, I, I predict, I've been wrong many, many times, but I predict the numbers are going to start to shake loose um, after this English debate and will continue to do so for the rest of the campaign. There's only two weeks left. Well, and I was at an event last night. It had nothing to do with politics. It had to do with uh, Rob Hitchcock, the retired Tiger Cat, who's going up on the Wall of Honor here. Yeah. But there was a lot of political talk there, and that which is highly unusual. But then I thought, no, this is just around the time of a campaign where people are starting to pay attention, starting to read the brochures, and and starting to form opinions on this stuff. Uh, yeah, as I said, at the top is there hasn't been really anything to grab the passion of um, uh, or grab the imagination of voters. But um, you know, I don't think we're going to see quite the turnout that we saw in 2015. I don't sense the same enthusiasm. Uh, Does, doesn't that hurt Trudeau then? That uh, could hurt Trudeau, and uh, you know, he, I don't think he's going to get quite the um, the turnout of young voters that he would have four years ago. Uh, no doubt that hurts Trudeau. Um, but on the other hand, you know, uh, when you look at these national numbers, Andrew Shear is piling on, as you know, in uh, Western Canada, where you know there's nothing left for him to, to do out there. He's going to sweep Alberta, probably uh, come close to sweeping Saskatchewan, but. Uh, it's the regional numbers that we have to uh, take a look at. Uh, you know, the Southern Ontario, 905, uh, Quebec, Lower Mainland, and BC. That's where uh, the seats are, are going to determine uh, whether who wins and whether it's a majority or a minority. So, uh, you know, those are the numbers that the campaigns are looking at. Is, is their regional numbers? But um, you know, I, I don't hear as many people. I, what I hear from a lot of people is what I heard from people before this campaign six months ago. Uh, I, I can't stand uh, Justin Trudeau, or I can't stand Andrew Scheer. Uh, and that's a little unfortunate, because I don't hear anybody saying, wow, uh, Trudeau sure deserves another four years, or what a great prime minister Andrew Scheer would be. It's very negative, and it seems to be baked in. Uh, Trudeau is clearly polarizing, uh, and in his own way, so is Andrew Scheer. So it, you're going to have a lot of people, I think, voting against people uh, when they go to that ballot box and you know that's probably not an ideal way to, to, to choose a government but I think that's where we're headed It's uh, called All Challengers Up for the Debate It's in the Toronto Star today or you can check it out on the website Tim, always great to get your perspective Thanks so much for this today You too Bill, thanks for calling Take care, Tim Harper 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.